1982, horror aficionados retreated to a ghoulishly delightful cinematic experience with the release of this 80s flick, a morbid masterpiece directed by George A. Romero and written by the legendary Stephen King. This anthology flick paid loving homage to the golden age of horror comics, delivering a spine-tingling collection of five tales that combine gruesome frights with dark humor. With its unique blend of grotesque imagery, dark wit, and a stellar cast, it quickly earned its place as a cult classic within the horror genre. So hold your breath, watch out for meteors, and make sure Father gets his cake as Laramie Wells and I discuss Creep Show from 1982 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Give you the creeps. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. <laughs> the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Creep Show, rated R. I'm Tim Williams, the mastermind behind the mic at the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Joining me on each epic episode is a guest co-host who's as crazy about 80s flicks as they are about wearing parachute pants and solving Rubik's Cubes. We're diving into nostalgic treasures we saw at the local theater, rented on VHS tapes, or discovered on cable TV. From blockbusters that make you say, I feel the need, the need for speed. To hidden gems that'll have you screaming. They're here. It's a blast to relive these old memories and share our thoughts on what made these movies so special. We reminisce about our first time watch experiences, share our favorite scenes, and even discover fascinating behind the scenes tales about the cast and crew along the way. Haven't hit that subscribe button yet? What are you waiting for? Come on, do it! On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And hey, while you're at it, be a pal and drop us a written review along with a five-star rating to tell us what you think about us. The sportos, motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Take a day off and come hang out with us on social media. Just search 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And don't forget to bookmark 80sflickflashback.com for more gnarly content. Get out of town. I didn't know you did anything creative. Want to crank it all the way up to 11? Become a supporter on buymeacoffee.com for only $5 a month. Do or do not. There is no try. Click the link in our episode show notes, and while you're there, soak up the extra trivia and fun stuff that didn't make it into today's show. Thanks again for tuning in. Now, let's get right into today's episode. All right, welcome in, everybody. So glad to have you on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. And we're coming into our favorite time of year, spooky season, which then quickly changes over to happy, happy, fun season with Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, the the two extremes within a couple of months. But kicking off this spooky October season with a movie that I had, well, I thought that I had not seen, but as I rewatched it, realized that I think I had seen it. It's been a really long time, but one that seems to be a cult favorite, and that is Creep Show. And because it does pay homage to the comics, I had to bring 
the king of comics as far as the podcast goes, Mr. Laramie Wells from Moving Panels. How you doing, Laramie? I want my cake. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, that was the story that I was like, I've seen this because I remember me and my sister like saying that for like a couple of weeks after we watched it. Where's my cake? I want my cake. So that's really the only story. I think that one and the meteor were the only stories that I really remembered or were, I guess, more <laughs> memorable to me as a kid. So in other words, you watched the first two and then your your yeah, attention yeah, was just I may not have, Yeah, I may yeah. not have made it past then. So we'll just jump right in. Why why not? Uh, when did you see Creep Show for the first time on TV? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I honestly don't remember. Uh, yeah. I really don't remember. This is one I don't have a vivid memory of seeing it. Mm-hmm. I know I saw it. Funny enough, and this actually goes to something you and I were talking about before we recorded. Mm-hmm. I Part of me almost won- wonders if I didn't rent this one at the library. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I really cannot remember when I originally saw it. Yeah. I mean, I vividly remember the cover, like the poster was oh, yeah. the same cover as the as the VHS. So I think maybe that's why I thought I was like, I think I've seen it or maybe I haven't seen it. But, you know, I didn't really get into we talked this multiple times on the show. I didn't really get into like the horror stuff until middle school and or junior high. So this came out in 82. I was really too young to see it. So me and my sister probably watched it or I, she may have been watching it because she's older. And then I watched the first couple uh, like I said, first couple of yeah. stories of it, and then got bored with it, or you know, it is not really He Man. Let me yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not really like scary, like slasher, like Friday the Thirteenth or Halloween, one of those that would give me like nightmares or anything. So that's why it's it, in, and I think I expected it to be a little bit more funny than it was. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it has some. There's definitely some funny moments, and we'll get into that. But I, like I said, I don't remember seeing it for the first time, but there's definitely parts of it that I remembered as a kid. So it's been a long time, but how long had it been since you watched it before we were watching it for the podcast? Oh, it had been a good minute. Um, <laughs> I would say probably 20 years at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Since I, since I had last seen it, not that I don't like it. It's just, yeah. Oh yeah. It's not one you think about. It's not yeah. one. It is kind of one of those under the radar horror movies or one that they're going to play. Like I know they play the second one a lot, or I seem to see the second one more in the streaming services and stuff. And I'm, I'm sure I'll watch that one. Next I'm, and that's why I kept thinking, I think I've seen the second one, but not the first one, but I won't really know until I go back and watch the second one now. Yeah. I think that's just the second one. Probably <laughs> there's not as m- many, uh, I guess rights or licensing mm-hmm. with it. Uh, Cause mm-hmm. I think the second one's even on like Tubi. Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah. I, honestly, I think you can watch the second one for free on YouTube. Probably, um, yeah. But, yeah, isn't, but yeah. Isn't isn't the second one PG thirteen? Is it not R like the first one? Oh, I'm not sure. I don't remember. Okay. Story I, from I own time. it. I mean, yeah. I actually I own I own all three. Mm-hmm. But to give you an idea, uh, like my, I, the first one I have mm-hmm. on DVD, right. And it is a butterfly case. Yes. Like, oh, that, yeah. That gives you an idea how old this DVD is. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's uh, it's one of those DVDs that when you put it in, it just starts playing. Like, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't have take, a home menu. It it has a menu, but, but it, it doesn't, doesn't immediately go to the menu. Right. It immediately right. starts playing the movie. <laughs> you didn't buy this for the special features. You want to watch the movie. Here we go. 
Oh, there's no special features on yeah. here. There's the <laughs> there's the trailer and scene access. That's there it. you go. There you go. Scene selection and the theatrical trailer. Hope you didn't pay more than five or ten bucks for that one. Oh, I'm sure I did when I originally got it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Now, the second one, the third one, probably not, especially right. the third one. But we're not here to talk about those two. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to we'll, we'll get to the second one because it's 87. I think the third one came out in 90 or it came out in the 90s, I think. Possibly. Early 90s, I think is what I saw. All right, well, before we get into story origin and pre-production, we, it is, it's not based on an actual comic, but it's an homage to the comics. So anything that you want to bring your comic knowledge in about the history of the comics or, you know, well, so, yeah, inspiration. so it's, yeah, so it's based on really in general, any of the horror comics from like, uh, you know, the fifties when mm-hmm. both George Romero and Stephen King, you know, were of. Uh, that age, probably, probably like teenagers, yeah, around that time. It, it was EC Comics, mm-hmm. is what they were called. And this is a uh, Tales from the Crypt, like Tales from yeah. the Crypt is this type of comic. Uh, so to kind of give you the idea of that's really what this is inspired by. I mean, they even have mm-hmm. the creep, um, who you see at the beginning, and mm-hmm. you see, even though he doesn't speak like the Crypt Keeper, um, you've got this figure that kind of intertwines the stories. He does talk in the comic adaptation okay the creep, the creep does speak um but yeah these were those comics um and again this was the 50s these were the comics that pretty much uh caused all of the the uh the uproar with parents mm-hmm. uh, about you know how they're ruining our children and <laughs> uh the whole seduction of the innocent book that was written mm-hmm. and, which led to all of that but yeah that that's that's what this is this is uh, inspired by the horror comics of the fifties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that you pretty much covered all that I was going to say about pre-production. Cause that's really all there is. It was, you know, pretty much Stephen King and George Romero were given this opportunity to work together and they had been friends for a while. And it was like, this was the yeah. best way for them to do it. It's also the well, first movie that George Romero did not write, which I thought was interesting too. They wanted to do the stand together. Right. Right. But uh, they couldn't figure out how to take something as epic <laughs> yeah. as the stand and turn it into a you know two hour movie, mm-hmm. which they still haven't because it's yeah, been exactly a, it's been a mini series and a television series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, you can't take something like the stand and make it a yeah kind of like one single movie. Yeah, kind of like it. Like even it, they couldn't do in one movie. They had even when they made it a movie after the mini series, it had to be yeah. two parts. So. Yeah, I don't think the stand though could even be done in two parts. No, no, but that is probably one of my favorite adaptations of Stephen King. Well, not that I've read a lot of Stephen King books, but that was one of the first Stephen King, quote unquote, adaptations that I remember watching and really the, the miniseries. Yeah. yeah, the miniseries. Have good. you seen the 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 CBS the series? Yeah. No. Okay. I think yeah, it's see, still, I haven't either. I think it's, it's on Paramount, Paramount Plus. Plus yeah. yeah. I think when I first got Paramount Plus, it, it it made it onto my watch list, but I never got around to it. So maybe, maybe one of these days I'll I'll sit down and I've got like a I've got a short but distinguished list of uh, shows that I want to binge uh, at some point. But I'll I'll add it to that list as well. But yeah, but as uh, Laramie said, it, it does consist of five short stories: uh, Father's Day, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Varell, which is based on the King short story Weeds. 
something to tide you over, the crate. They're creeping up on you. Two of these stories were adapted from King's short stories with the film bookended by a prologue and epilogue scenes featuring a young boy named Billy, who was actually played by Stephen King's son, Joe, who was punished by his abusive father for reading horror comics. To give viewers a comic book feel, Romero hired longtime effects specialist Tom Savini to replicate comic-like effects as well, which I did like some of the cartoon aspects of it to make it, as you would say, a moving panel, like like, yeah. like watching a comic book. Which and a heck of a lot better than Ang Lee would do uh, with Hulk. <laughs> yeah, we won't talk about that one either. <laughs> Not one of our favorites for sure. All right, well, that's pretty much it for pre-production. Uh, we'll jump into casting. And for this one... Oh, so you, you didn't say the other one that was uh, was a Stephen King or, uh, original short story, which was The Crate. Right, um, right, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Weeds, but also mm-hmm. The Crate. Uh, and then the other three yeah, were brand new written just for uh, the movie for this movie. Although he did have uh, a couple of stories that were already written mm-hmm. um, that they thought about considering didn't. And then they ended up being in creep show too. Yeah. I think I meant, I'm, I think that's, I have one of those in some of my notes further down. So I think we'll get, get there. So, and now these messages, Are you a fan of movies and TV shows inspired by comics? Ready for a podcast that dives deep into the thrilling world of adaptations? Well, look no further. Welcome to Moving Panels, the podcast where we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. This is your go-to podcast for all things comics on screen. I'm your host, Laramie Wells, and every Monday we explore the dynamic universe where ink meets action. We break down the classics, reveal hidden gems, and uncover the creative process behind your favorite adaptations. Subscribe to Moving Panels now on your favorite podcast platform and join us on this epic journey through the pages of comics and onto the big screen. Remember, new episodes drop every Monday. Don't miss out. Moving Panels, where every panel has a story and every adaptation is a blockbuster. Subscribe today, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Hey everybody, do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about the days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? The TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time and how things just aren't quite the same today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life For You. And here at Retro Life For You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro. And we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. So as we go through casting, because this is a, a you know, it tells multiple stories, there's multiple characters, we're going to kind of go story by story and then only going to hit what, what I would say like actors we would know or recognize or there's something interesting about them and their career. So with the wraparound story, as you guess you would call the, uh, the, you know, book pro, yeah. the, pro, yeah, the 
prologue and epilogue. So as we mentioned before, you had Joe King as Billy Hopkins. Uh, he's better known by the pen name Joe Hill. His work he's, a, he's actually a, a writer now, just like his father. His work includes the novels Heart-Shaped Box, Horns, The Firemen, The Short Story Collections, 20th Century Ghosts, and Strange Weather. He also did the comic book series Lock and Key. Yep. He has won awards, including Be uh, Brahm Stroker Awards, British Fantasy Awards, and an Eisner Award. Uh, Joe King is the son of authors Tabitha and Stephen King and the brother of Owen King, who is also a writer as well. Which which I know we're, 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 we'll get to it, and you may have this in your notes, but mm -hmm. since you just mentioned that his mom is named Tabitha. Yes. Uh, the two younger people mm -hmm. that are at the party at the crate are named Tabitha and Richard. Mm-hmm. And Richard, of course, being a reference to Richard Bachman, Bachman yeah. which was Stephen King's pen name mm -hmm. uh, originally. So, yeah, little, yep. little connection there. Yes, I did see that. I don't, I don't think I include that on my notes. So I'm glad you brought that one up. But yeah, both. Uh, so, Lock and Key was turned into a Netflix series, mm -hmm. uh, one that I've been interested in getting into, and then uh, uh, another one I haven't seen. Horns was turned into a movie. A movie, yeah, that's with, with uh, Daniel Radcliffe, right? Daniel Radcliffe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I ever really knew that his son was a writer. And if you look at look at a picture, I mean, he's a spitting image of his oh, father. Yeah. I mean, they they look, you know, very much alike. There's a real there's a a picture out there of the two of them side by side, and they're mm -hmm. reading reading a book of each other's. <laughs> like Stevens reading one of Joe's books, Joe's and books, Joe's yeah. reading one of Stevens' books. Yeah. So he so his full name, I think Hill is a shortening of his middle name, which he took on because he didn't want. So people know that he was basically, you know, Stephen King's son. He wanted to be a writer on his yeah. own merits. And I think he ended up coming out. Somebody, I guess, a, 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 a newspaper article or reporter outed him as the son, son of Stephen King. And then he, you know, made the announcement that he was. But he was, that was right before his first book was published. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, his middle name's Hillstrom. There you go. Yeah. All right, and then we have Tom Atkins, who was uncredited as Stan Hopkins, the father. Uh, I recognized him immediately. He's known for his work in the horror and thriller film genres, having worked with writers and directors such as Shane Black, William Peter Blatty, John Carpenter, Fred Decker, Richard Donner, Stephen King, and, of course, George A. Romero. He is also a familiar face to mainstream viewers, often playing police officers and tough authority figures, and was best known for his role as Lieutenant Alex Deal on the Rockford Files from 1974 to 1977. Of course, the movies he's been a part of that I recognize him from, The Fog from 1980, Escape from New York in 81, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, also yeah. released in 82, Night yep. of the Creeps in 86, Lethal Weapon in 87, his uh, famous scene of being shot with the eggnog spilling out. Is my, that's, I'll, that'll always be the scene that I think of him in. Uh, <laughs> he was in Maniac Cop in 88, Bob Roberts in 92, Striking Distance, Bruce Willis reference for you there, Laramie, in there 1993. He was also in My Bloody Valentine 3D in 2009 and Drive Angry in 2011 with Nick Cage. Uh, the, the one where he was he, he was Ghost Rider, but not Ghost Rider? Yeah, he was driving yeah. a car instead of a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's trying to, to uh, get out of hell. Wasn't that the premise of that movie? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I don't think I ever saw it all the way through, but... Nicholas would know. He's the Nick. He's the Nick Cage uh, aficionado <laughs> of the group. Yeah, but and he's then, uncredited in this. Yeah, movie. which I thought was interesting because yeah. he's definitely someone that people would recognize, especially at this time, from his other, you know, pretty you know well known TV and movies for sure. 
the only other person from this story we'll talk about is Garbage Man number two, played by Tom, Tom Savini. Savini. <laughs> He's the American prosthetic makeup artist, actor, stunt performer, and film director. He's known for his makeup and special effects work on many films directed by Romero, including Martin, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, and Monkey Shines. He also created the special effects and makeup for many cult classics like Friday the 13th, Parts 1 and 4, Maniac, The Burning, The Prowler, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He also directed Night of the Living Dead, the 1990 remake of Romero's 1968 version. His other directing work includes three episodes of the TV show Tales from the Dark Side and one segment in the Theater Bazaar. As an actor and stuntman, he's appeared in films such as Martin, Dawn of the Dead, Knight Riders, From Dusk Till Dawn, Planet Terror, Machete, Django Unchained, and Machete Kills. He's worked with uh, Tarantino a lot there at the end, which I'm sure Tarantino definitely wanted to work with him. Oh, yeah. Um, as he got older, so great, great uh, makeup guy. Oh yeah, talking horror movies. Yeah, for sure. And then we'll move on to Father's Day, and I only have one actor from this <laughs> from this story that I that we all recognized, and that was Ed Harris with hair, which I thought was you know interesting. Yeah, I'm so used to seeing him bald, so it was funny to see him you know younger with not really with long locks, but but hair, yeah, and some and some awesome dance moves. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, but his character's name was Hank Blaine. He's appeared in several leading and supporting roles, including The Right Stuff in 83, The Abyss in 89, State of Grace in 1990, Glengarry Glenn Ross, The Firm, Nixon, The Rock, Stepmom, A Beautiful Mind, Enemy at the Gates, A History of Violence, Gone Baby Gone, National Treasure, Book of Secrets, Snowpiercer, Mother, The Lost Daughter, and of course, Top Gun Maverick from 2022. Yeah, he's been in the business for a long time, but yeah, that was not a that was not a face that I expected to see in this movie. So I thought that was pretty <laughs> pretty funny when he popped up. And then yeah. we'll move, go ahead. Well, well, anybody I, else in that one? So I I do just want to mention, even though he's not going to be recognizable, mm. but the the actual corpse, yes, of the grandfather was actually played by the guy who had just played Martin in yes. uh, George A. Romero's movie Martin. Mm-hmm. So even though completely unrecognizable yeah yeah uh i did like again this it a lot of this shows how george a romero was really a one of those directors that actors wanted to work with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, not well not just actors because even you know tom savini right um but so i i just like pointing out those those connections because there's another yeah. person which i i assume you might mention but mm-hmm. in one of the other stories that also has a small bit part mm-hmm but well, I'll let you keep going. So. Okay, yeah, because you only got one person to name in the next one. <laughs> yeah, in the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill, it's Stephen King as Jordy Verrill. If you don't know who Stephen King is, I mean, are you are you you know where how, are you from? How, how dare you? <laughs> but we'll talk about him anyway. American author of horror, supernatural fiction, suspense, crime, science fiction, and fantasy novels. He's described as the king of horror as his books have sold more than 350 million copies as of 2006, and many have been adapted into films, television series, miniseries, and comic books, as we mentioned before. Very funny performance by Stephen King. This was the this was probably the funniest of the stories to me, yeah. or the goofiest. I, I will say, I think his performance is kind of polarizing. Mm-hmm. There's some people who, you know, like you, and I would even say me, who think it was perfect for mm-hmm. what, he was doing like he knew what right. he was doing. Right. There's other people who will think that he's just too goofy mm-hmm. and he's uh, just 
uh, too over the top. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I agree. I think it was exactly what it needed to be for what it was. And I I think considering he's not an actor, I would say it was a pretty good performance. Yeah. uh, There's a note that said he was told to play Jordy like Wiley Coyote the way he looks when he goes off a cliff. And I think that pretty much summarizes well, I think it, character. I think, and again, I have, I have a lot of love for Stephen King, but mm-hmm. this is a truth. This is a truth about Stephen King at this time in his life. I think all the drugs he was on also helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah. I, I had the same thoughts too <laughs> when I was watching. I was like, how much of this is really him, and how much is it is him intoxicated, or you know? I mean, how much? How much did you love him pulling the orange juice out, or pulling the orange juice? Uh, out of the refrigerator, pouring mm-hmm. the bottle of vodka in it, and then using the bottle to stir it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get to the favorite scenes, I guess, as we go. But let's get through the other two, two, a uh, few stories, and then we have something to tide you over uh, with, of course, Leslie Nielsen as Richard Vickers. Man, Leslie Nielsen is just so great in these type of roles. Yes. Like it's just which I think people forget that he yeah. was a dramatic actor oh, yeah. for a long, long time, time. Yeah. Before airplane, which even mm-hmm. in airplane, he plays it straight. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, which and, is why then, he does it so well. Yeah. Yeah. And then police squad, mm-hmm. uh, which I had any I don't think the Naked Gun movies had come out yet. No. No. Yeah. They were so a, really like, it was only police squad mm-hmm. at this moment. And airplane, well, yeah, and airplane, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, he and some of his older movies, he did play a villain, Mm -hmm. and he is very good at playing a villain. (laughs) Oh yeah. All right, so we'll do his little bio. He uh, he's renowned for his exceptional comedic talents and versatility in both dramatic and comedic roles. As we mentioned, he initially gained fame as a serious actor in films like Forbidden Planet in 1956. And the Poseidon Adventure in 1972. However, it was his remarkable transition to comedy that solidified his legacy with iconic performances and films, as we mentioned, as Airplane in 1980, where he played the deadpan Dr. Rummick, and the Naked Gun series of films from 1988 to 1994, where he portrayed the bumbling but endlessly entertaining detective Frank Drebin. Great stuff. Yeah. And then the other person we recognize, of course, is Ted Danson. Three cheers. Yeah, pre-cheers, yeah. yeah. He made his film debut in 1978 in the crime drama The Onion Field. His breakout role was as Jack Holden in the films Three Men and a Baby and Three Men and a Little Lady. His other film roles include Body Heat in 81, Dad in 1989, and Saving Private Ryan in 1998. Very small role. I forgot he was in Saving. Yeah, I I remember him now. There's a ton of, like, I rewatched Saving Private Ryan for another podcast I did, Manly Movies, with JB. And rewatching that, there are so many cameos in that movie that just people just pop up in, you know, random scenes. And yeah, it's good to see him in that one. But yeah, but uh, this this story was probably the one that I I can't say it's my favorite, but because it was so different, it wasn't the gory. It was more the the tension building story. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. I, one. I will go ahead and say it's my favorite. Okay. I, I will go ahead and say that yeah. uh, of the five yeah. or six, whichever, if you want to call the, the wraparound, <laughs> the, right, the, right. the book in. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and then I'll mention that Richard Gere was uncredited as the man on TV, which 
So uh, I saw that when yeah. I was doing a little bit of research, but I have never heard that. I yeah, some of the other stuff I've heard in like documentaries and interviews, mm-hmm. and I have never heard that about <laughs> Richard Gere. Yeah, so it, did, it didn't kinda, jump out to me, so I, I have to go back curious, and Kind of curious how factual that yeah. is. All right, so are you going to mention uh, Becky? No, you can. Okay, so yeah, this was the other person I was talking about okay. earlier. There's another one coming up too, but go ahead. So Galen Ross, who plays Becky, mm-hmm. uh, Leslie Nielsen character's wife, uh, who Ted Danson's character is having an affair with, mm-hmm. she was the lead character in... Uh, Dawn of the Dead. Oh, okay. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. So she, again, big, mm-hmm. you know, George A. Romero, she had played a lead for George A. Romero, and here she is in a, you know, couple of minutes. <laughs> you, you, yeah. you either see her on a screen or you see her heavily in makeup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are the only two ways you see her. But, and she's one that she did, I want to say she only did like four movies and then she just quit acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, I saw an interview with her where she actually talked about it was this movie hmm. uh, that while she's, you know, <laughs> she's up to her neck in sand mm-hmm. and the water's coming up on her. She remembers just looking over at uh, Romero sitting in his chair just with this big smile on his face. And she just thought, well, yeah, it looks like things are better from the other end of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so she, yeah, she became like a director. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She gave up acting. So unfortunately, this movie did her in. <laughs> she mostly does documentaries, though. I think. Oh, okay. But yeah, so yeah, there was another another person that was just a a, a person who enjoyed working with Romero that mm-hmm. agreed for this small little part. Yeah. But yeah, but I, she was she was the main character. Um, uh, Francine took me. Okay. Francine, gotcha. the main, the the blonde main character mm-hmm. from uh, from Dawn of the Dead. Very cool. Very cool. But yeah, this does seem like that kind of movie. You know, it's all the different stories and easy to kind of plug in people for really small parts. You know, be there for a day or two of filming or whatever, and go about your business. So that's probably easy to get them to sign on for stuff like that. So the next story we have is the crate. And this one has a few faces we recognize, the first being Hal Holbrook as Henry Northup. He made his film debut in Sidney Lumet's The Group in 1966. He later gained international fame for his performance as Deep Throat in the 76 film All the President's Men. He also played Abraham Lincoln in the 1973 miniseries Lincoln and the 1985 miniseries North and South. He also appeared in such films as Julia and Capricorn 1 in 1977, The Fog in 1980, which... I just watched a couple months ago. Wall Street in 87, The Firm in 93, Hercules in 97, and Men of Honor in 2000, just to name a few. But uh, uh, and we, yeah, look, I can't talk, I, you can't mention Hal Holbrook without talking about his one man show. Yes. Mark Twain. Yep. Yep. I mean, the man became Mark mm-hmm. Twain. And mm-hmm. I, I, I got, I lucked out to be able to watch it on, I think, PBS many, I'm many sure. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it's such a good performance. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was funny when I saw him in this because I just watched The Fog not too long ago. And I'm like, you know, just I don't think of how Holbrook and like horror thriller movies. So but he he was good in both of those. And then when, uh, he, when he showed up on uh, Designing Women playing his oh, real yeah. life wife's boyfriend. <laughs> Always good when those things happen. Designing Women. I, I think I found it on Hulu. 
and started watching that show from the beginning. One of those shows that like it was still trying to figure itself out the first season. It really didn't mm-hmm. hit its stride to like season two or three. It's still a pretty funny show, even now. Yep. One of your favorite beauties, uh, Adrian Barbeau as Wilma Billy. Just call me Billy. Yeah. Northup. She came to prominence in the 70s as Broadway's original Rizzo in the musical Grease and as Carol Trainer, the divorced daughter of Maud, played by B. Arthur on the sitcom Maud from 1972 to 78. In 1980, she began appearing in horror and science fiction films, including The Fog, as we mentioned, 1980. Oh, people from The Fog in this movie. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, Escape from New York in 81 and Swamp Thing in 82, which Larry and I have discussed on his show. During the 90s, she became known for providing the voice of Catwoman on Batman animated series and subsequent animated series. In the 2000s, she appeared on HBO series Carnival as Ruthie. But, but yeah. And and at the time of this movie, she was Mrs. John Carpenter. Yep. Yep. Uh, which I can't help but assume that the Julia Carpenter on the <laughs> crate is not a reference yeah. to. Yes. Yes. There are some references there for the thing, which I think I'll, I'll talk about in the in the trivia. It is funny because every time when, when she popped up, I had to say, this isn't a John Carpenter. Like, he yeah. didn't direct this. Like, <laughs> I'm just, anytime I see her, I'm thinking she's being directed by John Carpenter. But, but yeah. And then, uh, so this was the person I thought you might have been talking about, but Christine Forrest as Tabitha Raymond. She is the former wife of George A. a. Romero yes. and appeared in many of his films. Forrest met Romero on the set of Season of the Witch. She went on to appear in Martin in a role specifically written for her by Romero. She was also in Night Riders, released the same year she and Romero wed. She was in Monkey Shines and The Dark Half, which she also co-produced. In addition to appearing in a small role in the film, she was a producer and assistant director on Dawn of the Dead. Yep. And then the last yeah. go ahead. Right. And then the last story is They're Creeping Up on You. And of course, the great E.G. Marshall as Ups and Pratt. He was one of the first groups selected for the new actor studio by 1940. 1940- by 1948, Marshall had performed in major plays on Broadway. Among his film roles, Marshall is perhaps best known as the unflappable and analytical juror number four in Sidney Lumet's courtroom drama 12 Angry Men in 1957. I don't as know a, about that. I would say he's better known as the dad from yeah, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. That was Christmas my next one. He's the yeah. father-in-law of Clark Griswold National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation 89. But he also played the president of the United States in Superman 2. Yeah, him and the bad toupee. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yep. So got to have a good Superman reference in there for you, Laramie. And another Superman reference, Ned Beatty, uncredited as the voice of Bob Bean. Oh, yeah, never heard that before. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. A couple of uncredited, uh, whether they're, you know, which is hard, I guess, because they're uncredited. It's kind of tough to to know if it was true or not. Once again, I I did this after watching the movie, so I'll probably want to go back and watch those scenes and see if I can tell if it's them or not. All right, well, you've already said your favorite story was something to tide something you over. Something to tide you over, yeah. I, again, like you kind of said, I just like the yeah. way that one has, you know, the tension in mm-hmm. it. The acting in it is superb. Yeah. yeah. From Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson, both. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I just, that, yeah, that, I mean, that's really it. That's my favorite. Yeah. Do you have a least favorite of the stories? Uh,. I hate to say it, but probably the crate. Okay. Um, I just, part of it, I think just drags a little too mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Uh, which is, it is the longest of the mm-hmm. stories, but then also, and I, again, you know, 
suspension of belief, but there's a lot of it that I'm just going, yeah, that that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, or, yeah. That yeah, why why would that happen? Or even when he's talking about how he covered everything up at the end, I was like, no, mm-hmm. no, you, you really didn't. <laughs> um, there's there's still a lot that could <laughs> lead mm-hmm. lead a good you know police detective straight to you. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, let. Uh, also, how did you get both your car and your wife's car back uh, to the house? Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, the other guy had just woken up. You just told him everything, and he's mm-hmm. the only other person who knows. So yeah, I, I won't get into all the details, but there's just there's too much to the crate, uh, and I yeah. think it's because it went too long. Yeah, that kind of just poked some really obvious plot holes in it. Yeah, and that that's why it's my least favorite. Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I won't talk about the fact that in Father's Day, Ed Harris just lays there and watches <laughs> the, the tombstone, the tombstone fall on him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> has yeah. plenty of time to get up, mm-hmm. but he just watches it happen. Yeah, yeah, I felt like that one was kind of like a good introductory story because it's pretty, pretty quick, pretty, pretty quick and straightforward, and you kind of know pretty early on what's going to happen. You I mean, it's that there's not a yeah. whole, you know, you know, they're all going to be picked off one by one, but yeah, I agree with you on the crate and even watching it. I kept feeling like it was two different stories that they were trying to kind of mesh together at the end with like this beast that, that the, that the, the uh, scientists or whatever, or the, you know, the lab people were finding. And yeah. then you've got this disgruntled husband whose wife is treating me like crap. And I'm like, okay, I feel like you're trying you're trying to force these two stories together to, for him to get rid of her, but it it took yeah. too long for that to really develop. And I'm not saying she was a great individual, but uh, divorce seems like a much easier route. <laughs> right, right. Hey, it's not like he was. De- even though they kept saying, "What would you do without me?" Mm-hmm. It's not like he was dependent on her. I mean, he was clearly the money maker. He mm-hmm. was clearly, uh, you know. So yeah, yeah. That that one. Oh, Again. and I will Others. say, favorite part of that is she pours the glass of milk at the house when she's on when she hears the phone message, and then when she's down there about to hold get up, to the crate, hold up, that wasn't just milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she also pours pour some booze pot, in yeah, there. Yeah. But, I'm not a drinker, but I definitely <laughs> would not think to mix milk with yeah. whatever alcohol she decided to pour in there. Yeah, uh, but then I noticed, like, when she's there at the laboratory about to go into the crate she's still got the glass in her hand i'm like are you yeah. still sipping on that milk you brought it with you so it well, just, yeah clearly she she's a drunk driver because yeah. even when she <laughs> arrives back at the house you know you see her stumble as she's mm-hmm. getting out of the car mm-hmm. and then i think you're even supposed to gather as she's heading to the college that she swerves or something yeah you hear like yeah. a car horn mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. looks like she's irritated by whoever's behind her or, or all that <laughs> yeah the crate again I, I could I could ramble on a few more things about the crate, but uh, but we ain't got time for that. No. All right. Well, let's talk about. Uh, I don't think this one has an iconic scene because it's so many different stories. It's hard to think of an. Or, or would you think there is an iconic scene of this movie that makes it stand out? Or when someone says um, "creep show," what's the scene that you first think about? Honestly, it's uh, what first thing I think about is Ted Danson's head in the sand. I mean, that's what it is for me. Uh, I do. You know, if, if you, you were to ask me to just think about Creep Show, I will mm-hmm. picture Swamp Thing, Stephen King. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
and I, I'll remember the crate, but it'll literally just be, oh, and there's a crate. Like that, <laughs> like that'll be the most I remember about it, uh, typically, and, until I start thinking more about it. Yeah, yeah, because they're creeping up on you, even though it is a, a really good little story. Mm-hmm. I tend to forget it's a yeah. part of this. Yeah, I was gonna say if I if I had to pick my least favorite, I think it's that one only because I feel like it wasn't needed. Like I think Push Like We Thought is a two-hour movie, so that's the last story. I think you've because the crate runs so long, it kind of feels like, do we need another story at the end? And it, 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 it's, it's kind of gross because it's the bugs, Yeah. but it, what it didn't feel like a good final story or a good, like conclude, not a concluding story, but I felt like the crate was more of the one that should have been at the end because it was longer and maybe. So I won't disagree with you that maybe they're creeping up on you. Wasn't the best choice, but I don't think it should have ended with the crate. Okay. I, I do think that it needed something as if, if you want to call it a, you know, palate cleanser. Oh, I gotcha. Gotcha. After the crate, uh, just, uh, just, to, Oh, Hey, you sat through this, <laughs> you know, 40 minute story. Uh, let's give you something just quick to end on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, E.G. Marshall does a good job. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Looking like a geriatric Larry Fine. Um, <laughs> that's another one, though, that I'm just like, I, as short as it was, and this is kind of funny since we're talking about how long the crate is, I needed a little bit more explanation. Like, mm-hmm. why does it, why is his apartment the way it is? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why does it look like a mad scientist lab? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why does he look like he's living like a villain from a Bond movie? <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause Tyra, you know, actually, I, yeah, she, she kind of came in at the end while I was watching it and she was like, is he in like an insane asylum? Is this all in his mind? Which is what I kind of thought it was going to be at the end where it wasn't like all these people he was talking to were not real people. He was just all fabrications in his mind and the bugs yeah. being a fabrication of his mind. That's why I thought like the room looked so sterile because it was, you know, yeah. he was in a padded asylum. room. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, again, suspension of, of belief, mm-hmm. I get, but I needed maybe just a little something more like was his the his rival who had committed suicide and mm-hmm. the wife call did the wife like curse him and that's where the bugs are coming from <laughs> right that that's maybe the closest explanation we get but i kind of needed something to explain why are mm-hmm. all of these you know cockroaches just showing up right right uh because it's clearly not just an infant's infestation mm-hmm. like there is some supernatural Mm-hmm. Uh, element going on here and i just felt like i needed just a little bit more because at least with you know with father's day okay undead zombie he's getting revenge mm-hmm. uh, same thing with something to tide you over zombies right. getting revenge right jordy Verrill, you got the meteor you've got a, a reason a purpose uh the crate you've got a reason and a purpose mm-hmm. uh, even the wraparound story yeah you've got a yeah. reason and a purpose yeah this one I got the reason is he's just a bad dude, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I needed something to explain why it was where, happening. Why, to yeah, yeah. Why the bugs, yeah. where are the bugs coming from? How are the bugs involved? Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm mean, like, being yeah. a dermaphobe. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think that's why I felt like it was a psychotic break or mental. Yeah. Like the thing he fears the most, he can't get rid of. It's like, and then all the tormenting at the end, like he's calling like there's bugs everywhere. Yeah. That, you know, We've got bugs all over the city or the, you know, and then 
the yeah. exterminator coming in. Are you, you know, you still got the bug problem? What's going on? So it just, that that's the way I interpret that story. Yeah, and that probably could have been a, although you wouldn't have had the the very awesome Tom Savini mm-hmm. uh, waxed version of E.G. Yeah. Marshall that gets <laughs> with exploded. Yeah, uh, with yeah the, that was. You wouldn't have that, but I, I do like your your idea of maybe there at the end when the person shows up at the door it ends up doing something to show him, you know, in a straight jacket, like mm-hmm. up against the corner and it ends up being an orderly. Mm-hmm. And the, the guy from earlier, I don't remember if they gave him a name or not, but it was the exterminator guy that was coming. Well, he wasn't the, I didn't take him as he was the exterminator guy. I took it as he was like the assistant to the landlord. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. The landlord was out of town. Right. But, right and right. he was just letting him know, Hey, you know, I tried mm-hmm. to find a 24 hour. I think I can get the, the uh, uh, Farrelly brothers, um, <laughs> which I, I know the the Farley brothers weren't a thing at this time, but I couldn't mm-hmm. help but think of them, you know, here by 1130. So I just took it as he just worked for the building. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also could have been interesting for him to have been a, an orderly mm-hmm. who comes in and then, yeah, I, I really think your idea I like. <laughs> um, not that I dislike. Yeah. Uh, they're creepy. Yeah, yeah. I don't dislike any of these stories. Yeah. If I were to if I were to rank these, I would put uh, Tide first. Mm-hmm. I'd probably put Father's Day second, Jordy third. They're creeping up on you fourth, and the crate fifth. And I, I wouldn't do the wraparound story. There's not enough. Yeah, there it's to, yeah, it's it, that's really. not really its own story. Yeah, it's just kind of a yeah, exists an introduction and a conclusion. Yeah, for me, mine's going to be pretty close to yours. I think something to tide you over is going to be first. Yeah, I'll put Father's Day second. Death of Jordy as third. I'm, I think I may I may put the crate just above. They're creeping on you. I think that's still my least favorite. Okay, uh, but you know it's yeah. not by much, but pretty close. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I would, yeah, I I could see that. Like I said, the crate just there's too many. Yeah, too many plot points that mm-hmm. I would go. Eh, I don't. That doesn't work the way you're <laughs> implying it yeah. would. And maybe what you know, watching it again because I hadn't seen it in so long. Watching it again would give it would give me a different perspective on it too. And now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Hell, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. All right, well, let's hit some uh, scenes and trivia. Uh, once again, I'll kind of go through each story that I have my own, kind of like wrap around with a, a trivia to start and trivia to end that's not necessarily related to one of the stories. But starting off, the prop 10 cent creep show comic book featured in the film was drawn and inked by veteran artist Jack Kamen one of the artists for the original EC crime and horror comics of the 1950s. This movie was a tribute to those comic books. As we said, Jack Kamen also created the comic book style poster for the film, which also featured on the front of the plume creep show comic book adaptation 
for which Bernie Wrightson, another prolific horror comic artist, drew and inked the, the interiors. Originally, Stephen King wanted Graham Ingalls, another EC artist famous for his work on the title The Haunt of Fear, to do the artwork for this movie's poster, but he refused. It was head of EC Comics William, a, William M. Gaines who then suggested Cayman do the assignment and Cayman accepted. Any of those names that you recognize? I know you're the comics guy. Now, I don't know an awful lot about EC Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just know that they were the big you know, horror comic of the 50s, mm-hmm. Tales from the Crypt. Uh, it's probably their most known comic. I know it's EC, which is the same thing with you know DC Comics, and DC mm-hmm. stood for Detective Comics. So you're saying Detective Comics Comics. <laughs> uh, and EC was the same thing because I think it was entertaining comics. Okay. And so you're when you say EC comics, you're saying entertaining comics, comics. Um, <laughs> I don't know an awful lot about the history of it other mm. than it being the big horror comic of the 50s. And I want to say, I could be wrong on this, but I want to say that when the horror comics were all shut down um, at that time with the censorship and all, I want to say they're the company that started Mad Magazine. Oh, really? Um, I think. Now, I, okay. I could yeah. be wrong about I, that. I have to research that and see. But I think they could be. Uh, they could be the company that's in order to to still have something to produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're the company behind Mad Magazine. Hmm. Very cool. Let's we'll definitely check that out. All right, so I don't have anything necessarily about the wraparound story that we haven't already talked about, and for Father's Day. Although there was one note that I didn't put in, but I will reference it. And I didn't put it in because I want to go back and see if it's true. And that there is a, a trivia thing that the ashtray yes. used to kill in Father's Day is shown in each story. It's it is shown. true. Okay, that is true. Okay, so. That is true. Of course, it's uh, obviously in Father's Day mm-hmm. as the main thing. In Jordy, it is sitting... On the nightstand, I think, or something like that. Yeah, it's sitting. It's just sitting on a nightstand that you see briefly. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of where it is in a tide. I know that in the. I, I can pull it up real fast. Well, I know that in the last one, it's a soap dish. Yes, uses, I remember it's that sitting one. right there on the sink. All um, right, here we go. Okay. All right, so, so the marble ashtray, which plays a major role in Father's Day, is featured in all five of the film segments of you closely. And Father's Day, it's obvious, shown to viewers multiple times. Lonesome death of Jordy Verrill next to the cash box at the Department that of was it. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Something to tie so you I think over. It's sitting, I think it's sitting on a table than in the crate. Okay, yeah. Something to tie you over is on the nightstand next to Richard's bed. The crate, the crate, it's on the writing desk when Henry writes the letter to Wilma. There you go. Okay, and then they're creeping on you, up on you, the soap dish where Upson Pratt is washing yeah. his hands. And the wraparound story, it's on Billy's desk when he first starts stabbing the voodoo doll. Oh, now that one I didn't remember. Okay. But but no, I did know that that was, that was a uh, a prop that – and then it uh, it appears in like other – I think other either Romero movies or just okay. other like horror movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also know that it has appeared in the, the uh, Shudder Creepshow series. Oh, okay. Like, it's actually I popped see up. that. Yeah. In some of the stories uh, mm-hmm. that they've told on that. Yeah, I could see that, them wanting to use that for sure. The crate shows back up in, uh, I think it's Jason Goes to Hell. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you see a boat go by and the crate. I mean, it, it it's clearly not the actual crate. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, you see a crate and it's still got the same, like the Julia Carpenter, mm-hmm. 
uh, expedition, you know, June, whatever the date was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because that's a, there's a little nod to it. And I'm pretty sure it's Jason goes to hell. Very yep. cool. So in the lonesome death of Jordy Ver- Verrill, we mentioned Stephen King had an allergic reaction to the makeup he had to wear for the transformation. He was subjected to shots and medication so the work would be bearable, as he put it. So that's the only note I have. Give a little bit one. of realism, though, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something to tide you over. The segment is almost identical to Stephen King's short story, The Ledge, in which a wealthy man forces his wife's lover to risk his life for amusement. The Ledge made its way onto film as the second segment of Cat's Eye in 1985. My favorite story, of course. While he was all business in his scenes, Leslie Nielsen had a fart machine in his pocket during the shooting, yep. which is very famous that he does. Uh, yeah. He would let it go off during rehearsals and just before director Romero would call action, causing Ted Danson and the crew to crack up with laughter. Now, did you know about the alternate ending for this segment? Or something to tide you over? Yeah. Oh, yeah, with the police? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So an alternate ending scripted but then rewritten found two policemen dropping by to investigate Richard's panicky but true claims of Harry and Becky invading his beach house. When the policemen predictably laugh at his story, thinking he's drunk, Richard attempts to prove this by showing them camera footage of both undead stalkers. Instead, the television plays his incriminating conversation with Harry before and during the latter's burial by the sea. Richard protests that he's been set up and this is the wrong tape, Oh, it's the right tape. All right, pal. The police answer. And speaking of rights, the film smash cuts from there to Richard's murder trial. He's convicted and sentenced to death row. Another smash cut finds Richard in the gas chamber laughing hysterically, even while his life is choked out of him, saying, I can hold my breath for a long, long time. Which is interesting. I, I like yeah. I like the ending they went with better. but it, Yeah, the, I mean, the ending thematically, it fits with all the other mm-hmm. uh, endings for the most part. And it fits with the inspiration of the EC comics, which a lot of those stories had just that abrupt, mm. you know, scare ending. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you don't, you don't always, and I mean, you got to think in a good ghost story and a good horror story, you don't get everything, you know, nice and neatly wrapped up in a bow. Right. All right. And then for the crate uh, in a possible, we mentioned this earlier, we'll give the details in a possible homage to John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982 which was set in the Antarctic. The crate discovered in the fourth segment has shipped to Horlicks University via Julia Carpenter, Arctic Expedition, June 19th, 1834. The original film, The Thing from Another World from 1951, did take place in the Arctic, which I think that was the story that The Thing was inspired by. Yeah. The uh, onset nickname for the monster in the crate is called Fluffy, Fluffy. <laughs> named by George Romero. Fluffy was the first fully animatronic creature Tom Savini had created. He spent over an hour and a half on the phone with Bob Botton, effects artist from The Thing, The Howling, and Total Recall, to get advice on how to build it. That was the good-looking cool. creature. Mm-hmm. My question is, did the creature have legs? Yeah, because we never really see the bottom no, half. No, and you creature. also got to think, he fit in that box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You fit in that crate, and the part of you, the the torso and head and all mm-hmm. that you you do see, are pretty big. Mm-hmm. When he attacks, uh, whatever that kid's name was, the college, the grad student, mm-hmm. when he attacks him, it looks like that's all there is to him. So I don't know if this creature just has like tiny little feet <laughs> uh, on the bottom of his torso, or if he's only a half of a creature. 
Yeah. Because I will say for the longest time, when I was a kid, for the longest time, and you may have just made that connection if you talked to those people for inspiration. Mm-hmm. Longest time, I actually thought it was a wolf. Like oh, a really? wolf type creature. Okay. Yeah. You know, when I, when I was younger and I would talk about it or think about mm-hmm. it. Uh, I did think it was just some sort of like werewolf, uh, which it does have a lot of similarities to a, yeah, yeah. a werewolf. And see, I even though it's an homage with the crate, I'm not thinking it is the thing because the thing is definitely not that type of creature and, at all. So um, no, I think the homage is just the 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 actual the lettering, stamp, this, on yeah, the, the stamp on the, yeah, on the crate saying thing. Carpenter, saying mm-hmm. Arctic Exped, ex, yeah. uh, Expedition. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when I think when it first came out and you kind of saw it, it made me automatically thought about the uh, the monster on Hoth that takes Luke captive at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back. Oh, kind yeah, of that yeah. abominable snowman type of looking creature. Yeah. But but yeah, it, again, I'm just still thinking about the plot points like, mm-hmm. you know, Hal Holbrook's character throwing it into the ocean. And I'm just first off thinking, what if it had hit the edge as it was going down? Mm hmm. Like it would have just shattered, and the creature would be free. But then also, when he, when the his friend asked him about it, and he said, "Well, if you saw how I chained that up, you didn't chain it up any differently <laughs> than it was already chained up." Right. Let me right. mention that. Yeah. And then second, the crate is made of wood. Mm-hmm. So as soon as it got, you know, waterlogged, Wet. yeah, it, it was going to become softer. Yeah. And exactly what happens happens. Mm-hmm. So again, so many. It's one of the reasons why I, I think. It just, mm. <laughs> I think it would have been better if he had locked it up and then just put the crate, the crate, ba- or the crate, and then the grate back, back on the over, bottom of the yeah. stairs and just mm. left it there. Mm-hmm. I think yep. that would have been better. Yeah. And I think there was, was it Tom Savini? Somebody had said, I didn't write this one down, but I, I thought about it that supposedly they wanted to at the end, like when the, when you see the, uh, the creature come out of the crate. You were supposed to see Adrian Barbeau's dead body float out of the crate as well when he yeah. escaped from the crate, which would have been a cool yeah. extra effect, but wasn't really needed. All right, and then the last story, they're creeping up on you. Uh, this was for you, Laramie. The music playing on his jukebox at the beginning mm-hmm. is the same instrumental that plays over the ending credits of The Evil, Evil Dead. Dead. <laughs> and, like I said, uh, I think there are a few little nods to yeah. some other uh, horror movies in oh, this one. yeah. And then uh, in the original script for the film, the final story originally took place in a lush carpeted penthouse apartment. However, because of the roaches, this would have been unworkable because they wouldn't be seen as easy. George A. Romero opted for an emptier, almost hospital room-like set for the story. In a creep show special feature from the pages of Cinefantastique, Cinefantastique magazine. Say that fast four times. I'd rather uh, not. Yeah. Around the time of this movie's release, Stephen King and Romero revealed that if the film's final story had proven to be too difficult and ambitious to film, it would have been substituted with King's short story, The Hitchhiker, which ended up being the final story of Creepshow 2 in 87, directed by the cinematographer on this movie, Michael Gornick. So you mentioned that earlier about there were, he had a couple other stories that they thought about adding as well. And then the last little thing I have to close out the trivia, this is one of the only successful anthology films at the time. The success of this started a mini cycle of those type of films, that being Cat's Eye in 85, Twilight Zone the movie in 83, New York Stories in 89, Creepshow 2 in 87. There had also been a mini cycle of cartoon anthologies right before this, 
namely American Pop in 81 and Heavy Metal in 81 as well. However, this was the only only unqualified success of the bunch. Hold on, there was another one that you didn't mention. What was that John Carpenter one? Body Bags, but that was, yeah, that w- it wasn't until the 90s. But Okay, yeah. Yeah, Body Bags, which was another uh, anthology movie. I don't think I've heard of that one. And then you also get Tales from the Dark mm-hmm. Side in the yeah. 90s, which would be another horror anthology. Yeah. And then you got you got those ones that you can find on like Netflix, like the ABCs of Death mm-hmm. and uh, VHS. And so I think horror anthologies are still kicking. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it's I'm, good to know that this is, you know, kind of the one that really kicked that off. off. Yeah. I was going to say this one showed it could be successful. Others haven't been able to replicate the success the same way, but it could be done. All right, let's talk about box office and critical reception and wrap this one up. Warner Brothers tried an unusual release strategy for the film that ended up being hugely successful. They booked several theaters in the Boston, Massachusetts area during July of 1982 and saw the film did great sales and had strong word of mouth and then ended the limited run. They then moved the film from its planned early October release to early November because they concluded that the main rival horror film of that period would be Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which would, op- which would open strongly and then fade quickly, which it did. Because Universal planned to release their film right before Halloween, understandably, Warner Brothers guessed the horror film market would be open for a new film soon afterwards and felt that Creepshow would do considerable business for the final months of 82, and they were correct. It was given a wide release on Wednesday, November 10th, 1982. In its opening weekend, it ranked number one at the box office, replacing First Blood in the top spot. It became the highest grossing horror film for the Warner Brothers studio that year. <laughs> yeah, Halloween 3. <laughs> Silver Shamrock yeah. movie. But again, also starring Tom Atkins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, two, two, two back-to-back. I wonder if that's why they – maybe that's why he was uncredited when, when uh, Halloween 3 tanked. They're like, let's not put his name on this one. <laughs> yeah, especially, yeah. He's going to be the bad guy too. So. Right, right. So uh, Rotten Tomatoes has this at 65% on the tomato meter with a 69% audience score. IMDb is 6.8 out of 10 with viewers and a 59 on Metacritic. What say ye? Is it a 60, 70? Mm, yeah, I, I'd say I'd say upper 60s. Yeah. I'd probably agree with the 68. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree if people put it in the low 70s, but Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this like like you said it like well like I said at the very beginning. This just isn't this isn't a movie you think about an awful lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. E- even you know with me as much as big of a Stephen King fan that I am, Stephen King I don't even think talks about this movie an awful lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, yeah, I'd probably put it in the the upper sixties. It's a fun one, you know, to see from time to time, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think even like the twenty year gap that I've had between watching it, I think that that was good enough. I didn't miss out <laughs> in the twenty years. Yeah, it's kind of a fun one to 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 watch every so often. It's not one of those you want to watch every year during during this season, but it's definitely one. Like I said, it's kind of under the radar that people kind of forget about. Be a fun one to pull out every every so often just to watch the. You know, watch the stories and maybe, maybe the, you know, with this one, you could skip through, you know, watch those stories you really like and maybe skip through the ones you don't or don't like. I will say that's what's fun about anthology, mm-hmm. uh, horror anthologies is you get a story that you're 
that you're like, eh, this is not really good. You just got to wait 15 minutes and then you get another one. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, unless it's the crate, then you got to wait, you know, 28 a, minutes, a fourth of this movie <laughs> in order to get through it. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about with creep? Anything that you want to mention about the movie before we wrap it all the way up? I think we've, I think we've said, I think we've covered it. Uh, I will say I do own the, the graphic novel that was released at the same time. Oh yeah. Did you want to mention how it's different? They, that's the different order. Yeah. So it does have the crate and tide flipped. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it puts the crate as the third story and then tide as the fourth story. I, I, I think it's better the way it is in the movie because even though I do think that there needed to be something after the crate, I think if you put the crate right in the middle, it just brings the movie kind of just to a slow crawl. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then to have two other stories after it, I think yeah. would have been, would have felt like it was, it was extra long. Yeah. So I, I think it, the, the move, the order of the movie uh, was better, but that again, shows how clearly they made the graphic novel before they had finalized the movie. <laughs> right. So. As most of them are done that way. Yeah. Get little extra parts. Same with like, you know, the noveliz- novelizations taken from earlier shooting scripts and stuff like that. Hey, well, Laramie, thanks so much for joining on this episode. Always a pleasure to have you here, my friend. What's going on with moving panels during the spooky season? Blake Fowler is going to join me for a one-shot, just talking about a really fascinating horror comic called Something is Killing the Children. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to just talk about that. For those of you who've never heard of it, we're going to try to talk you into picking <laughs> up a copy. And then James Brooks is going to join me as he is a uh, horror guy himself he's going to join me and we're going to talk about from hell Mm -hmm. uh, the johnny depp movie from the early 2000s that many people may not know is based on a a alan moore comic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so uh, so yeah got those coming up and i'm excited about both of those very cool all right well everybody think be sure to follow subscribe rate and review both of our podcasts support the show through buymeacoffee.com and please buy a t-shirt or a sweatshirt from the website we've got new fall halloween designs i've got a camp crystal lake shirt a camp arawak from sleepaway camp shirt i think one that i've gotten a lot of good positive uh, reviews from is horror destination which has uh it's like a trail sign with the different cities of horror movies listed on them so be sure to check those out another stephen king reference Uh, yes at uh, the end of yeah there's a a sign that talks about how close they are to castle rock Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah you got that one too Yep, very cool. So you can find the, the shirts on tpublic.com or our website. We have a new email address if you haven't heard. It's info at 80sflickflashback.com. So please drop us a line and let us know what you think about the show. If you enjoyed it, please share it with someone who loves 80s flicks. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and the TikTok. Thanks again, Laramie, for being a part. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm Tim Williams from the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people. still here? It's over. Go home.
Go.